you see the denier saying comics sell better than ever yeah but if you take manga out they're they're in the worst shape they've ever been in yeah they want to blame everybody but themselves typical their mistakes were made but nobody made them they they, they aim their books at a at an audience like hipsters that live below 14th street manhattan and that was going to be their core audience and that core audience could, could give a crap about comics. It's like when they, they make a an all-female superhero movie and they blame men for not going to see it. Well, women don't go see it either. So you don't have an audience. Was it killed by social justice warriors? Yes, it was, because no social justice warriors showed up at the store to buy any comic books. Hello and welcome to CultureScape the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers who built nerd culture. In 2023, with comic book shops closing left and right, it's worth asking, can the comic book industry survive its terminal diagnosis of two years if it doesn't change course? Well, today we have a special guest, the man, the artist, the legend, Chuck Dixon, the creator of Tim Drake Robin, Spoiler Bane, and many more fantastic characters and stories. He is back on the show today to talk about the broken state of comics, how we got here, where it is going, and can this trend be reversed. We will also talk about his new big film adaptation by David Yair, the massive success he's seen for AlphaCore with Eric July's Ripperverse, his upcoming tabletop role-playing book, and what the fetch happened to Punisher, and so much more. Welcome back to the show, Chuck. Hey, how you doing? And I want to correct, uh, Marv Wolfman created Tim Drake, so... I, I, I'd have to surrender my cred if I didn't if I didn't correct you. Okay, yes, officially, yes, but you were you were I I consider you at least a co-creator in that well, endeavor. I, I helped develop him. Uh, you know, it was more of an Alan Grant, and then I, and they handed him over to me, and I took him a little further. That's but. an interesting place to start because one of the things we've seen a lot, which is really interesting if you know the the history of comic books, so. We'll go here. So Doctor Who, which is a big topic going on right now, in the midst of all the controversy, we can talk about that if you want, but one of the changes they announced just yesterday was that they were going to change how they pay the writers. Instead of giving them residuals, that's what they tend to do, they were going to do a bigger fee, but up front, which reminds me of comic books because this happened too in the 70s, even to the 80s. They were sometimes letting uh, writers, creators, like have control of the character Whenever this character shows up in a film or adaptation, you get a buck or two. What happened is we've seen even with the MCU and sometimes DC is they'll take these characters that are made and they'll just alter them just enough. You know, it's yeah. like uh, it's like Simpsons, you know, legally distinct, you know, uh, the, they are technically correct, the best kind of correct. And yeah. so then uh, the comic book creators like yourself, the writers, they don't get paid. Yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, I ran into this problem when they did a um, Stephanie Brown as Batgirl action figure. And uh, I didn't get any royalties. And when I complained to the licensing department, they said, well, it's just a variation on Batgirl. And I said, no, it's a variation on Stephanie Brown. <laughs> so, but uh, they did not see, uh, I did not see eye to eye with them. So I didn't get any residuals from that one. But uh, I got to say, DC's better on that end than Marvel. Marvel's horrible at, at sharing any uh, ancillary money from movies, TV, action figures, or the rest. It seems with Marvel, especially in this what this last phase, whoever want to call this era post-Endgame, that they've gotten especially bad 
with uh, adaptations of train characters. I think, I mean, people focus on the wokeness, um, you know, the political stuff, uh, just the lack of quality, and that's all there. But I think another big part is that they've moved so far away from the things that they were originally ad adapting that it just kind of comes out as mush. It's like, oh, this is just more Hollywood mush. This isn't, you know, the the adaptation of one of the great books by the legend Chuck Dixon or, you know, uh, take your pick, Mark Millar, someone like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you see the umpteenth variation on a classic character and you combine that with the multiverse and you just get a mess, you know, it's uh, it, it, it just reaches a point where who cares? You know, I don't care about these characters and I don't care about what happens to them because because of the multiverse, they can just, you know, do whatever they want. When anything can happen, who cares what does? No, exactly. Exactly. The, the multiverse is it, it's okay if handled correctly, but it can quickly diminish uh, the project you're working on because you're right. Well, in the hands like, of lazy writers, yes. <laughs> it's like the stakes here don't mean anything because if this if this version of Black Widow dies, they can just grab an almost identical one like that. Right, which seems kind of heartless and cynical. <laughs> uh -oh. It is. It is very cynical, but that's how that's how people are. People are very yeah. cynical generally. You, you have to earn their trust. It's not usually automatically given. Right. So there is this fabulous article a few weeks ago. Okay, so the the big main topic for this video is what's going on with the comic book industry because I've seen even since we talked last year. And, and you said that, you know, the industry wasn't on its best footing. I've seen more and more people in the mainstream, people who are respected, even at sites like ICV2. Okay, so these aren't, these aren't comics gate or alleged comics gate people. These aren't right wingers. These are, you know, these are comic store owners. These are the, right. the correct people that you might see appear on uh, Bleeding Cool or Comic Speed. Uh, so Phil Boyle, who owns Coliseum Comics, he wrote this great uh, analysis pretty blunt about what yep. is happening to the comic book industry. And uh, he, he talks about that, you know, the sales are in the toilet. And he kind of says here, and I'm just going to read these two. says, so where did it go off the rails? It's not such a conundrum to anyone with two active brain cells and a list of back issues that need to complete their runs. Comics first and foremost have always been entertainment. Sure, collectible entertainment, which justifies the cost of entertainment ratio, but along the way, the immediate sales and false bolstering numbers through varied covers, convoluted events, and incessant reboots left the considerations of the fans behind. Characters swap, gender bending, and changing sexual orientation beloved characters fell flat with the Wednesday Warriors who supported the industry for decades. The crowd of new readers the changes were meant to attract didn't translate to a one-to-one -one swap, leaving a declining customer base. To make things more difficult on retail, it's very deliberate abuse of the FOC system uh, and retailers' goodwill towards publishers. We constantly have to guess FOC and issue two issues out rather than the next. This makes ordering a guess throw in four covers on five, then a six on six, which is by Art German, another by Scotty Young. Seven has five covers with neither cover artist, and eight has a celebrity appearance cover. cover. It's a constant, very deliberate shell game, forcing retailers to guess on nearly every next issue. How do we fix this, assuming we can pull the canoe back over the waterfall at this point now yeah, of course I mean, in response to this article uh we, we have seen uh, bleeding cool comic speed he heidi mcdowell rich johns all the all the usuals just kind of go nuts and they they just have put article after article trying to uh say this is all untrue 
The problem is for them, though, is I'm reading every week of a new comic book shop uh, closing somewhere in the country. So what happened, Chuck? Like, what, what happened to comics? How did we get to this place? Well, like, I mean, for, first of all, I, I, I know Phil Boyle. He's a real smart guy. Uh, you know, he's got quite a large chain of uh, comic shops here in the southeast. And, uh, yeah, he runs a tight ship. And, and he's discussed numbers to me. They're just horrifying. You know about what's happened to comics. I mean, what what percentage of sales at his comic book shop are actually comic books is very very low. You know, he's selling tchotchkes and Funko Pops and all the rest of it. Uh, he can't survive selling comics, and it's because the the output is so poor. And um, you know, and and when we talk comics, we're obviously we're talking Marvel and DC. They're, they're the only game that really matters. I mean, Dark Horse is not going to save the comic book, American comic book industry. And it's really up to them uh, to get their act together. But I, I really think it's too late, you know, unless they start pumping some money into it, which neither Disney or Warner's is going to do, um, and, and do some marketing and some smart moves and a way to reach out. I mean, I mean, for example, Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway are doing a, a Returning to Superman a long run and um you know i'm a comic book guy i pay attention to this stuff and i would only know about it because i i follow dan jurgens on twitter uh so it's like even if they did something fabulous like that how do you let people know so they come back i mean it's 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 really too late um you know they're not good they've never been good at marketing and uh they're they're, they're not going to get any better and and unfortunately the comic book shops are the ones that bear the brunt. And to deny all this, you see the deniers saying, comics sell better than ever. Yeah, but if uh -huh. you take manga out, they're they're in the worst shape they've ever been in. Yeah, no, and ICB2, you know, uh, Comicron, you know, these sites, they haven't played a little bit of a shell game. And he's, he's alluding to this a little bit in what I just read, where they will take scholastic books. So these are... Sometimes, sometimes they're very graphic novelly, but sometimes they're just straight up. They're basically like novels with a few pictures, and and right. they're taking all these scholastic books, which are very easy to sell because you're you're basically forcing it on your market, school children and their parents. They have book fairs. They send the 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 pamphlets advertising the items with the kids. I mean, so they're boosting those numbers, and they've been hiding the actual sales of comics with all these fillers, all this filler. You got right. manga, we got scholastic. And so they've been able to play the shell game for so many years. And so people were saying, you know, comics aren't doing well. You know, you, they'll say, oh, that terrible guy, you know, your boy Zach, what a comics gate, what haters. You're just making all this up. But, but, and of course, now we find out. I mean, if you have been paying attention, you probably understood this. But now there's no denying it. Comics is falling apart. Yeah, it's like standing on the deck of the Titanic going, what iceberg? What, I, what, I didn't see an iceberg. <laughs> Oh, it's a little bit of turbulence. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, to be in denial about it isn't very helpful, is it? And I mean, and what would be in it for Phil to misrepresent the disaster that his, his retail business is in? I mean, it doesn't exactly. benefit him to say we're in horrible shape, you know. Uh, and it, it certainly would have benefited him to lie and say everything's fantastic. So, uh, you know, he's a straight shooting guy. He's very blunt, as you say, and he presents real numbers and he's presenting, you know, as they like to say, his, his own truth. 
you know, uh, of what's happening to his stores. And you know, and I know he's a he, he's a he's a smart guy. He's a nimble businessman. I mean, he knows how to read the tea leaves, and uh, he's letting us know what's happening. So to just say, you know, he's a hater or a denier. I mean, hate hate what? <laughs> it's crazy. No, it, it's insane. I think one of the things that I've noticed with all this is there's a level of cruelty. Uh, this was uh, it's comic social media. You know what? What the heck? I'll do a share. I never do share screens twice in one thing, but we'll do it. <laughs> so this is this is the insanity that I'm seeing. And I, this legitimately made me mad. And I'm a pretty patient guy when it comes to me because I'm like, you know, we all need to we all need to get our stuff out there, make a little money. That's just how it goes. But I mean. What this this article by Heidi McDonald, sorry Heidi McDonald, is one of the more vicious things I think I've ever seen. Where she actually, and I, you may have heard about this, where she goes to one of these retailers that are closing their shop, uh, and she interviews them. I mean, look, I mean, look at this guy. Like, that is not a happy guy. That looks like a guy that had his, his hopes and dreams and his livelihood crushed. I mean, that's like, ugh, that's he rough. looks like a hostage. <laughs> he does. He looks extremely uncomfortable. And she starts her article and she does not let it go throughout this thing. She says, let me ask you this. Was this store killed by social justice warriors? <laughs> and I'm just like, what? what is wrong with you? I mean, that's like going to a funeral and be like, well, he drank too much. <laughs> you, see, you know, you know, he kind of earned this. <laughs> like, no, you don't say that. <laughs> Yeah, they want to blame everybody but themselves. Uh, typical. Their mistakes were made, but nobody made them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, um, was it killed by social justice warriors? Yes, it was, because no social justice warriors showed up at the store to buy any comic books. Yep. No, they don't. They don't buy books. I mean, they may read books. I think there's probably more of a readership than people estimate. But, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's nice that they read it, I guess. Right. It doesn't do anything for someone like you. It doesn't do anything for the company if they don't actually purchase the book. No, no. I mean, you know, you know, they they they, they aim their books at a at an audience like hipsters that live below 14th Street, Manhattan, and that was going to be their core audience. And that core audience could could give a crap about comics. I mean, most people don't care about comics. Most people aren't aware of comics. It's a really niche market, and when you shrink the niche down even more. And basically tell a large part of your readership, we don't want you to buy our comics. You know, you you dirty, you know, you know, irreparable, yeah. you know, haters and whatever. You know, you're you're not the right color, you're not the right gender. We don't want you reading our comics. Well, you know, then you go, okay, well, I won't read them. And unfortunately, you know, it, it's like when they they make a an all female superhero movie and they blame men for not going to see it. Well, women don't go see it either. So, <laughs> you know, you don't have an audience. You 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 chased away your audience. You shouldn't be in the comic book business, basically. It, if you, if this is the way you're going to run it, you have no business being anywhere near these characters that generations of people love and, and, and treasure. And then, you know, you have no business being near them. Ironically, it's actually when these books, the few sales that they get or they go to these movies, ironically, it is men... We're purchasing the the content. I mean, it's not like they're purchasing a lot of it, but they right. are purchasing it. It's like the majority of people that went to see the Marvels, which is just such an epic failure by Disney. They were men. 
And right. that, that's because the people who usually buy comics, whether we like it or not, at least, you know, as long as I've been alive, are dudes. They tend to be now, you know, middle-aged, uh, upper-middle-class kind of guys. Right. And this is just something they're into. Once upon a time, you know, from the 50s through to, like, the early 70s, uh, there was a huge female readership. And they really drove comics. The highest-selling comics were comics that appealed to girls. And now they might be, you know, it might be Green Lantern. My sisters thought Hal Jordan was cute, so they would read Green Lantern. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it doesn't have to be girl-centric or girl-aimed. It didn't have to be a romance comic, although romance comics, Archie's, sold huge. I mean, millions of copies a month. And, um, and you know, they don't know how to get that audience back. They have no idea how to get that audience back. They think making, you know... Um, female superhero stories that only appeal to guys will will bring back the female audience. It's like, think about it. That doesn't make any sense. And manga, manga does fine with women. It's, it's oh, yeah. actually spread pretty evenly between men and women. But they read a lot. They, most people, it seems, are into manga, read some shonen. That's kind of like what they share in between. But uh, there are, you know, the way the Japanese organize the genres of manga anime they're these entertainment products isn't by like horror action supernatural romance drama you know like the way we do it they right. change it by audience which yes. is brilliant by the way so yes. this is for young boys this is for older women and right. everyone reads manga it's not just guys it's also gals it's not just one color it's all the colors but for whatever reason the western industry just never caught on to this or maybe they felt this model they couldn't use it or maybe they just you know held their nose like oh those japanese comics you know they're so beneath us uh, well, what do you what do you think happened here why didn't they learn from the example of manga and the, just the boom we've been seeing there well ever since the 80s i've been hearing you know manga why is manga so big well we need to we need to do what manga does and of course they thought it was about people with big eyes and lots of speed lines, and that's all manga was. And it's like, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a more close attention to plotting, and character development, and a, um, a variety of genres. You know, it is, it, instead of just doing superheroes t all the time, explore another genre. And the only comic company that really did that was DC with the Vertigo line. Uh, try to reach out and do a different kind of comic. And nobody's really tried that since. And because there's a manga for everybody, no matter what your interest is. Your interest is repairing refrigerators. There's probably a manga <laughs> for you. And and um, that's the beauty of it. But they, they never got the lesson of the manga right. And they, and they refuse to play with the format. I see now, way too late in the game, DC is going to start playing around with format. With, you know, with with the return of digest-sized comics, you know, maybe hoping they'll get mistakenly racked in with the mangas. Uh, so, you know, but just to never think what we're doing is wrong, we need to change. We need to alter what we're doing in a significant way. And they just never got it. And I do, I do think in a lot of cases they looked down on manga, that it was somehow stupid and unsophisticated. No, and I think you see it sometimes even now, even though I think we're way farther than where we used to be. But uh, there is a sense that, you know, oh, you're into that Japanese entertainment. Okay, you weep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, you weirdo. But it's it's not 
quite fair because it's like actually now this is like the thing this is what people are into so really it's you guys that have a problem with it they're way outside the norm but it, we we're still stuck in a cultural moment where the people who are in charge of these franchises and i don't know if you want to use the term gatekeeper but you know they're the stewards or the people who yeah. have control now and in previous generations there was an understanding and you, you know danny o'neill who was one of the first people you worked with back at dc when you get started there was that sense that oh i am in charge of batman this is a property with you know this is a legendary property with a legacy with a history we need to grow it we also need to protect it you know right. it's something important to cherish but that's not the attitude we see now. It's like with Doctor Who and all these crazy changes they're making. It's it's almost this attitude, oh, it was always awful. We must advance it now because this is the moral and right thing, even if people do not want it. Right. And it, it fundamentally misunderstands the audience, the history, all of it. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean it started in the early 2000s when the, the old-time editors were retiring, you know, um, and a new crowd came, and basically they were just indifferent. They were indifferent to the freelancers. They were indifferent to quality. They really indifferent to the characters. Really didn't care. It was a job, and they were trafficking. I mean, I heard editors refer to working at DC Comics as their day job, and it's like that's something you never would have heard from Denny O'Neill, Archie Goodwin, Mike Carla. I mean, these guys were dedicated. They were earnest about this stuff. They believed in this stuff, and as you said, they protected it, and. Um, because you had people who were indifferent, created a vacuum, and what's going to happen? That vacuum's going to be filled, and it got filled with careerists, uh, opportunists, what I call tourists, people who came in and thought, hey, if I work for DC or Marvel for a couple of years, it'll look good on my resume when I go to get a job at Vanity Fair. And they weren't lifers. They didn't care about the comics. They just cared about drawing attention to themselves. And... Um, when that happened, you know, we, we see the results, you know, poorly crafted comics made by people who really don't give a damn uh, and don't love these characters. It's a shame. I mean, it's a it's a travesty what what has happened, but it, it shows it doesn't really take that many years or that much time for a franchise for a medium, you know, to to be completely derailed. Yeah, which is which is a little, a little scary because you think about anything you really love or cherish. But I mean, this is true, like in your in your neighborhood, in your local community. You know, you you get leadership, but they don't really care as much as the last guy, and they kind of let things go somewhat. Um, it, it doesn't take that much for things to to break down. Well, you're you're only as good as your last sandwich. You know what I mean? I mean, you go to a place for years, they give you one bad sandwich, and you're like, I, I don't know if I'm in a big rush to go back there again. And when you got a, a, a monthly periodical publishing company and after a couple of months, you're like, I, you know, you know, you look at your stack of comics to be read and you realize I, I haven't read that comic in six months. I got six months because I have no interest in it. I'm, I'm just not going to buy it next month. And that we all know that we've all been comic buyers and we know that feeling of, boy, I'm really sad that, you know, I don't, you know, enjoy this character anymore, but I'm not going to keep wasting my money on it. And, and over time, it just erodes the audience away to where we've got it now, which is nothing. There's it, it, the sales figures on some of these comics from DC and Marvel is shocking how low they are. Like, why bother turning on the press for these this few copies? It, worse than that, it's not just the quality is bad, but often they go out of their way to insult their audience. And yeah. this is one of these things we're seeing with Doctor Who. 
they just had the 60th anniversary. I'm a, that's probably my favorite, one of my, eh, probably my favorite franchise, Doctor Who. I love that kind of stuff. Oh. Um, and it's it's this attitude and this new thing where they're they're attacking their audience, essentially. You know, they're like, oh, why aren't you, you know, modern and progressive in line? You know, why aren't you for all this stuff? Oh, you terrible doctor, you... You know, you would have known the solution if you weren't a male presenting Time Lord. And then <laughs> yeah, I read about and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are these people, you know, the media is running all these articles about how wonderful this is, how this was always planned, how it's, oh, Doctor Who is back. And then I read people on Reddit, they're like, why do people make such a big deal about this? Why are they so bothered by having trans, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, people here? And it's like, like, it's hard to tell them, and this is a very basic thing, but it's like no one wants to be insulted. Like, no one wants that. Like, you, you go to McDonald's, and the guy at the counter makes fun of your hair, or like, you go, hey, fatty, welcome back. Uh, you don't go back to that McDonald's. That's just how it is. What? It's like article after article where they say that men who refuse to date a trans woman are transphobic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you're going to get into my personal tastes in the opposite sex and say I have to date a dude uh, or I'm some sort of a hater. There's something wrong with me. I mean, you know, uh, what if you don't like redheads? Does that mean you hate redheads? If you're just not attracted to redheads? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, you're, you're, they're trying to rewire us or, or reprogram us and it's not going to work because human nature has been the same since we climbed down out of the trees, it's, it's not going to ever change. And to, to, to force you to try to force you to like something, even if you loved it for years. I mean, I know, I mean, as I said before the show, I mean, I, I've watched Doctor Who. I've enjoyed Doctor Who in the past. I'm not any kind of like rabid fan, but boy, I know a lot of Doctor Who fans who are rabid. And they must be heartbroken at this point because they've just torn the guts out of the franchise. No, definitely. It it feels kind of like to me what happened to to Star Wars or comics. It's almost it just has that feeling, you know. In some ways, I almost feel like it's worse because at least with Last Jedi, that wasn't George Lucas lighting the match, right? Whereas it, this is the guy that did that that saved the show in two thousand five and was in charge of the reboot, and so it's like that much worse because of it. But uh, yeah. I mean, oh well, they're just gonna have to learn this lesson the hard way, apparently, because that seems to be the only way we ever learn and I guess with comics maybe they never do maybe it just goes bust and no one ever learns anything and that's it well, well you gotta wonder I mean they are I mean the, the big entertainment giants are they're in ruins I mean they've never been this broke they've never been this in the red I mean tens of billions of dollars every single studio is hurting bad and they've got to come back from this but I don't know that they know how I mean, I see Warner is making some changes that are encouraging. I wish they would force DC to make the same changes. Uh, maybe they are. Maybe that's why Jurgens and Ordway are back. Maybe they said, hey, make comics people want to read. Because they're certainly telling their movie and TV division, hey, make stuff people want to see. I mean, Paramount's doing the same thing. Let's make stuff people want to see. Uh, because, boy, we lost. I mean, they're saying Disney's going to lose seven hundred fifty million this year. I I'll bet you it's much higher than that. I bet you it's above a billion. And, and then when you add in the money they've lost in theme parks, cruises, resorts, merchandising, they they must be getting murdered in merchandising, which is re the real cash cow for them. 
And, and, you know, you see them making one dumb mistake after another, not just in the woke arena, but just in the general retail uh, uh, end of entertainment. They just seem to not be able to make any right decisions. I agree. And this is this is a point that uh, my friend Neon over at Clownfish TV has made. You know, he'll go to Ollie's. I don't have one nearby, but he has an Ollie's nearby. And it, it's all this premium Star Wars or Disney merchandise. I mean, he's even seeing like exclusive items that you could only get if you went to Disneyland or Disney World or Epcot yourself. You know, you have all these all these, you know, it started where it was just like all these Ray toys and all these Rose right. Tico toys. But now it's getting to the point you're seeing Luke Skywalker's Darth Vader's. It's like there's just such little interest people have in the franchise like it used to be. And if you know your Star Wars history, the the, the genius with George Lucas and Star Wars was he made his money by merchandise, by, yeah. by franchising it out. And we, if you don't have that factor, it's like why even own Star Wars? I mean, I love Star Wars, but like from a financial standpoint, like why own it if you can't make bank on it? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it, it's it's amazing that, that Disney's forgotten all this stuff because that was Walt's thing from the beginning. I mean, when they used to carpet and when his brother, who, who was the bookkeeper, said, why are you spending $70,000 to make a seven-minute cartoon? I mean, back in the 30s, that you could make a feature for 70000 a decent feature. And he said, because the better the cartoon, the more toys we sell. You know, if you make a crappy cartoon, nobody wants the toys. And it's like, it's just, that's the model. That's the model, that, you know. Uh, and, and you know, he he was concerned with what the audience wanted. Um, you know, either for the tchotchkes or, or for the cartoons themselves. He was concerned that we're delivering the best product we can. And we see statements from Disney now. It's like, we're going to start concentrating on quality again. Well, why did you ever stop <laughs> concentrating on quality? That's your... That's your signature thing at Disney and Pixar is the, the, the stuff was quality. Whether you liked it or not, whether you liked a certain thing or not, you couldn't say it wasn't well done. You couldn't say it wasn't well presented. And now it's it. the stuff looks like crap. These movies don't look good. They look cheap. I don't care how much money they spend on them. And they're just not entertaining. Um, and, 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 and they're handing the reins over to like, they're handing like, you know, Hundred million, two hundred million dollar movies over to directors. This is their second film. You know, they made like an independent movie, and then now now they're making this. And you got to think, you know, how did they even survive this? Why didn't they just go to the trailer and shoot themselves in the head on the third day when they realized what they were in the middle of? Um, you know, so it's like you know, there's got to be a return to sanity. But frankly, for some of these studios, it might be too late. You know, they're waiting way too late to correct course. And I don't think Disney's intends on correcting course. They basically told all their employees to shut up about this stuff because they don't want any of it going public. But I don't see them steering away from the agenda, you know, whatever it is. No, I think I think you're right. Is there a way, I mean, this is mostly about comic books, but, yeah. you know, uh, geek culture in general, is there a way that they can get out of this is there like is there saving grace for comics the we with the article we talked about he does give a number for the death date and he says two years if the, if this stuff doesn't get fixed in two years comic industry is done he said by 2024 he thought maybe as high as a quarter a quarter of the comic retailers in the country could be shut down there's like a thousand retailers left so there's like you know a hundred 250 yep. 
shops closing. That's insane. Yeah. It, but it seems like he's done his math. So. Oh no! Yeah, no. He knows. How can we avert uh, this disaster? Well, if I were at DC and Marvel, I would go back to the old playbook, and I've been preaching this like an evangelist. And it's a simple solution, and it's something comics have done forever, or, or done since the 70s. When DC and Marvel were in bad shape in the 70s, they, they, they laid off 40% of their staff. They couldn't get on the newsstands at the, in the way they were before. All the rules had changed. They kept trying different things. Nothing was working. Readers were leaving. They go, how do we get the readers back? Let's make... A big treasury edition where Superman meets Spider-Man for the first time. And not only is that a gimmick that will make readers see it, because it's big, it's on the newsstand. If you're a comic fan, you're like, i got to have that. I've got to have that comic. Not only that, they said, let's make it the best comic book we can. And it is. It's a terrific comic. It's a really entertaining, escapist fictional story. I mean, they really worked harder on the art. They worked harder on the story and everything else. And they made the best comic they could make. And it revitalized both companies. It brought readers back. It, it, it gained interest for, you know, rekindled interest in Superman, rekindled interest in Spider-Man, and, and it benefited both companies hugely. And they need to do that again. I think the answer is crossovers, because crossovers, if you did a crazy crossover with a, with a high-level talented team um, so that you had faith that it was going to be good, it would spread like wildfire through the internet, you know, and the crazier idea for a crossover, the better. Because it's, because to say, well, we're going to do like the greatest Wolverine comic we've ever done, people are like, why should I believe you? You know, I'm not curious. I don't care. You know, but if you were to say, we're going to have, you know, Wolverine fight Batman. Yeah. Okay. I might, I might I'd take buy that. Yeah. I would read that. I mean, when they, when they did, when they had Bruce Campbell do that, Sergeant Rocket and zombie thing. I'm like, yeah, I want to see that. I want to see that. You know, so they got to start thinking outside instead of these, you know, endless intercompany crossovers and crises and secret wars. And nobody gives a crap about. Nobody trusts that that's going to be good. Nobody trusts that that's going to be entertaining. But you need to like take this stuff and handle it like the Sergeant Rock thing. You give it to Bruce Campbell. Okay, okay, it's Bruce Campbell. Everybody knows who he is. That gets some press. And you put him and Eduardo, Eduardo Rizzo together, boom, you know, you got something. And, and people go, okay, the, I, these are two names I trust. This is a property. It looks crazy. I got to take a look at it. I at least got to take a look at it. And that's that's what they have to do. They have to do something nuts to get people to come in and back into the shops. I, that sounds, I mean, I it sounds better than anything I can think of. Uh, one of the things <laughs> the guy recommended was and i've heard this a few places i just don't know how feasible this is to see if they could get uh brick and mortar retailers to start picking up comic books again not even that many just a few just a few issues but i just don't know how realistic that really is because it feels yeah. like if that they could have done that they would have done that years well, no. ago they obviously they could have done it they could have done it at any time but you know um for whatever reason they didn't because they don't they don't know how they don't know how to do this stuff anymore. You know, and, and ultimately, they don't, they don't care. because A lot of these people, if, if DC and Marvel were to disappear tomorrow, like I said, they'll just go get a job at MTV or Vanity Fair or, 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 or go, 
go live back home with mom and dad. You know, they don't care if Marvel and DC go under. Whereas Stan Lee, Tim Shooter, Tom DeFalco, uh, Paul Levitz, Jeanette Kahn, they cared that those comic book companies, they really, they did everything they could to make those comic book companies strong and protected and and profitable. I mean, they, they worked their butts off to keep these companies alive because they, did, they didn't want to see them go away. And I, I think that most of the publishing and editorial staff of these companies, they couldn't give a damn if they started working on Highlights magazine next week instead of Superman or Spider-Man. Unfortunately, I think for a decent portion of them, that is probably true. I think, yep. unfortunately, I think that is right because it seems like for so many, the emphasis is like comics is just my pit stop. It's just it's just my stepping stone to something greater. Right. Uh, usually, it seems like it is Hollywood. Hollywood. It's like oh, um, and some some companies have made like decisions uh before uh you know they're thinking oh you know if we just we just get a really expensive indie comic going or something yeah. like an indie comic and we can we can say oh we churned out sixty thousand hundred thousand of these things then netflix will come along and save us yes um and unfortunately a few more than a few companies have tried this tactic and uh it doesn't usually turn out very well for them no i mean i mean look at idw i mean they played the hollywood game and you know they're well they're they, they're bankrupted you know not legally not on paper but they're bankrupt they they got nothing uh so you know you know that it, it, you know Hollywood is, it's a great seducer but you know ultimately Hollywood's going to take care of Hollywood they're not going to take care of you I think the greatest crime I mean Marvel's always screwed over creators but the the, the, the biggest uh, act of theft in comics in recent years was when uh, the people running DC in the 2000s allowed Warners to redefine net receipts. And, and what that meant was, is that DC would get less for licensing its product to Warners. Remember, Warners owns DC. They would get far less for licensing, because the freelancers would get far less, because the freelancers get a little bitty piece of that, uh, those properties that are licensed. And so they... The, the people running DC did something that Paul Levitz or Jeanette Kahn would never have done. They screwed over everybody. They screwed over the company. They screwed over the freelancers. And I think, honestly, they were thinking, hey, if we do this favor for Warners, we might get jobs at, you know, with the parent company someday, which was so naive, it's laughable. You know, they were just chumps. You know, why would we hire you? You're an idiot. You, you gave away your company. You betrayed your company, uh, you know, in, in hoping for some perks. Yeah, and the creators, this is something uh, Richard Meyer, a lot of people have noticed. Mike Millar said this actually just over Thanksgiving weekend. What's happened is that writers come in, creators come in, and they save the best ideas for themselves because they know if they give them to the big two or whatever big company yep. they're working for, they're going to they're gonna lose creative control. They're not really going to get much reward out of it. So why give them my best stuff? You know, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to get Chuck Dixon's uh, spoiler fantastic storyline i'm going to save that for my new comics chuck right. dixon comics right uh dc doesn't get it which is a big problem because you you need those good stories that's why people like to read comics but if you're not giving them it's like you know what's well, the point guys well when dc started their participation program in the 90s and they let all of us know hey if you create a character you can get a percentage you know you get a percentage you know, action figure movie tv whatever you get a percentage 
Uh, well, the floodgates open. I mean, I know I, I created 250 characters, locations, and gadgets that I I have paper on. I have a I own a little bitty piece of this, and um, you know Marvel didn't do that. When's the last new Marvel character is created? I mean, you know they're all variations, but nobody creates new characters for Marvel. You'd have to be an idiot to create a new character for Marvel. And and and, and the lifeblood of comics is creating new characters. I mean, you can't have your hero facing the same half dozen villains in every issue. You could create new stuff. And uh, I think that hurt Marvel, and it made DC more vital because this this creative, you know, powerhouse of, of, of all these people going, yeah, I, w- I want in on this. You know, and it's not just about money. It's about I want to know I'm going to be recompensed for the stuff I create, that it's not going to be because everybody in comics knows there's a day when you're shown the door. <laughs> well, I want something to take with me. So that I know even when I'm showing the door, I'll get a check every three months or something. Yeah, it's it should be it should embarrass the comic book industry that they have some of their so-called heavy hitters that go out there on Twitter or Blue Sky or Instagram or whatever, like, hey, please, I'm you know, I can't pay for my heating bill. My you know, I can't afford to get the electrics. Please go to the school fund me so I, you know, I don't have to go to homeless shelter. And I'm like, Ooh, that's like a really that's a really bad look. It's like why would any self-respecting company put themselves put their employees in that position? It's it's, well, it's especially when all it takes is a, a little tiny bit of the money you've earned. You know, it doesn't cost you anything to give royalties to a writer or artist because you're just giving them a piece of what you've earned. Now, if it doesn't earn anything, you don't owe them a dime. If it's huge, then you owe them some money. Uh, but. You know, the way they have it worked, the way they have it set up, uh, at DC, it's no picnic. At Marvel, it's far worse. Is you've got guys who create characters or are used. I mean, Joe Starlin. How many movies was Thanos in? What was Thanos in? Like $7 billion worth of movies? And at least he, he got, you know, he got a pittance, a pittance. He should be a multimillionaire based on that. But as Graham Nolan always says, if Paramount had made Dark Knight Rises, he and I would be millionaires today. <laughs> that that that's a that's a fun that's a fun alternative universe to imagine. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it's interesting because you do have and you've had projects get adapted, or you've been advisors on for movie projects, Hollywood projects. And I, I, I was listening to uh, Ask Chuck Dixon because Chuck Dixon has his own YouTube channel. And once a week, he he asks, he reads uh, questions from the viewers and goes into the the depths of whatever topic they want to know about. And you were talking about that Hollywood, at least from your perspective, was not as lucrative or as interesting as a lot of people think it is because there was a period in your life where you, people were contacting you and say, hey, Chuck, we want to adapt this. We want you to come in for that. And you said... No, thanks. Yeah. What What's the story there? Because all these people that have so destroyed the comic industry, they want to be in Hollywood. Even Jeff Johns, who's like, that's a very successful guy. I I know we watched him fortunately for years. This guy get dragged behind, you know, the semi truck, trying to trying to make the Hollywood thing work. And he's like, he is a talent. Jeff Johns is actually a good talent. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's sad. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, somebody asked recently, you know. Jack Kirby said, comics will break, you, break your heart. I said, well, if you elect them, 
but Hollywood will turn your heart to stone. I mean, you have to learn early on dealing with Hollywood to say no. I mean, I got a reputation of one, one producer, very successful producer for CBS television. He was back with Universal back then. He said, you're, you're, you're getting the reputation of the guy who always says no. And I said, yeah, well, it, you know, you, you offer me enough money, you know, like real money, because what these guys would do is they'd say, well, we'll option your property for $2,000. And it's like, oh, $2,000 is like found money. Okay. But what you didn't know is a lot of times they were optioning it so someone else couldn't get it. And they would just sit on it for a year. Um, and I learned that pretty early on. That if they came around the option, I would ask for a figure I knew they would say no to. Because if possibly they said yes, I would go, okay, well, that makes it worth my time. You know, even if you never make the movie, you know, uh, $25,000 would be great to have. But, you know, so you have to learn to play that game. You also have to learn, you know, it's just nothing but disappointment. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been close to movie deals with extraordinarily talented filmmakers, you know, Academy Award-winning filmmakers. And it just, at the last minute, something happens or someone decides they'd rather do something else or, you know, some arbitrary reason, the whole thing gets canceled. After millions of dollars have been spent in pre-production and, and, and paid to screenwriters and the rest. And, and, you know, it happens over and over and over again. And, and it gets to the point where you just don't get excited anymore when they call. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time and it's like, well, why aren't you more excited? Like, when I see my name on that check, I'll be excited. You know, for right now, it's all make-believe. I'm a comic book guy. I'm used to writing a comic book story and three months later, I see it. <laughs> it's done. You know, we don't we don't write comics that don't get produced. You know, we don't write comics and they cancel them before the public sees them. But, you know, that, that's the nature of the business. And, and to think that you're going to move from comics to a Hollywood career, well, that's just insane. You know, the, 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 the you know, the studio gates are probably could be would be piled with would be combo creators who want to become filmmakers. Ah, uh, no, it's a necropolis. It's a necropolis of broken dreams and skulls. It's yes. It's, there's so many, so many sad souls. Uh, yeah. You just had, of course, uh, one of your books. Uh, it's a series, but one of the particular books, the Levon Code. No, Levon Cade. Yeah, Levon Cade. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I I was. I, my notes, I can barely read my own writing. So, <laughs> uh, Levon Cade, which is really exciting. You got David Ayer, who's working on it. You got it's going to star Jason uh, Stratum, which is like, like some, a yeah. big, that's a big talent. That's a, that's actually good talent, too. It's not like one of those stars. It's like they can't act themselves out of paper bag. This guy's actually talented. Yeah. That's exciting. Are yeah, you so excited that's a slow that? screenplay. I mean, come on. You know, uh, now, 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 you know, people are going to go, well, didn't you just say everything gets canceled the last minute? <laughs> Not to get excited, but um, Stallone's involvement gives me faith because he doesn't stop. He doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't. And right now, he's he's as hot as he was when he made Rocky. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of juice out there. He'll, he'll make sure it'll get made. Uh, so I'm confident, you know, when they start filming in March that it's going to happen. You know, and... Um, you got you got two Academy Award-winning screenwriters working on it, David Ayer and and Sly. So I'm I'm super happy, and the, and the script is is very close. It's a very close adaptation of the novel, which is was flattering. They use a lot of my uh, dialogue. Yeah, I love. It. Of course, it's all going to change during filming, but for the moment, it it looks like a very very um, close adaptation to what I wrote, which is really cool. 
That is really cool. No, congratulations. Oh, no. I may I may lean on you with a movie when the movie comes out to, to talk with Mr. Stratham, but uh, we'll we'll cross that bridge when it happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, you also have a, a I I love your Conan stuff, by the way. Conan is such a cool character, and it, it's kind of oddly underutilized. Oh. But you have some excellent books with Conan, and my friend Alex McCree with uh, his company Autark are developing a role playing game around it. Which is pretty cool, I yeah. think at least. Yeah, um, you know, they approached me uh, through the publisher and um, offered a deal, you know, uh, to base a, a Conan uh, tabletop game off of, you know, just my novels. I've written three; two have been published. And uh, yeah, hey, why not? Uh, my, my youngest son is really into gaming, so I thought, well, he'll he'll get a kick out of this. And uh, you know, so I. I'm sort of girding. Every time you get involved in a gaming project, you sort of gird for the questionnaire because there's going to be a questionnaire coming that I have to answer all of these questions that aren't that they need for the game that aren't necessarily in the novels. <laughs> so I'm going to have to either tell them things that were in my head I didn't put in the novel, or or make new stuff up to fill in the gaps. But uh, that's all part of, of of doing this. That's that's my job on, on the game. Source books are brilliant. They are actually, they're a genre unto themselves, even if you don't play D&D. I love reading, especially the books from like 20 years ago. Just yeah. reading them because they have so much flavor text. They're so descriptive and interesting. You can tell the people, someone sat down and really thought about how did, how did these people live their lives? How do these systems that they're in work? Right. You know, what, what is the color of the wallpaper? And I love that kind of stuff. It, it's so cool. It's funny because, you know, we are seeing so much growth from smaller and uh, your son is into role playing, so probably not you is kind of what I'm getting here. But um, we've seen D and D; they've gone weirder and weirder. Uh, calling it progressive or woke isn't quite. It's not even quite enough of a descriptor. Right. They're like, they're like, you can't use the word civilization. You can't use the word barbarian because that implies. And it's it's like it's like I'm not. Sh I don't know how they haven't X'd out every book in the dictionary at this point. Because that's how it seems to be, but and so I love it that this your your Conan, which is a very politically incorrect sort of character, yeah. And that they're doing this book, and I'm sure it will do really great because I know people who are into tabletop are just they're just so tired of the nonsense, and they're really interested in something they can really sink their teeth into. Yeah, yeah, my my novels are anything but politically correct. <laughs> I, I go right back to Robert E. Howard. Uh, you know, I I wanted these things to read as if they were serialized in weird tales. Uh, and use, um, you know, his muscular kind of prose, his terse muscular kind of prose. And yeah, it, uh, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't apologize for, for that. I think no, that's what Conan readers want. Exactly. And you should, you know, it's like you're, you don't have to read the Conan if you don't want to. Right. But if you're going to read a Conan book, it needs to be a Conan book. Like right. D&D, &D, one of the problems they made is they said, well, you know, oh, you know, so it's people, they, all this fighting, all this violence. <laughs> Why would people want that? I know. In our next book, we will feature a tabletop work in a coffee shop, and I am not making that up. That was two books ago. That was the main book for Dungeons Dragons. It was, here's how you can turn D&D &D into running, you know, your little hipster shop A, you know, with the E at the end. And then there's a pride, like, no one buys it. Like, it doesn't make oh, any sense because there are games like that. I mean, my, my son plays every kind of game. He plays, you know, Star Wars Legion and Warhammer. But he also plays, he, he loves this game where you run a supermarket chain. 
So you can already do that. You don't need dwarves and elves to do it. You just have a, it's, it's a supermarket game, you know, or you run a railroad or something like that. I mean, it, it's like Dungeons and Dragons. It's about conflict. It's not about violence. It's about conflict and, and, and risk and danger and adventure. And come on, you're going to, you're, you're, you know, what are you going to do? You're, you're going to run a hat shop in the village. I mean, doesn't make any sense. I, it is it is so weird. It's like another of those things. It's like, how did these very strange people end up being in charge of something that was so important? It doesn't make sense. But I mean, if I could if I could really answer that question, I mean that that's like a million dollar answer right there. Well, I, okay. I guess because you can be canceled, you know, and I guess if people get into the HR department or something, and they get in a position where they can you know threaten your livelihood. There's another thing is there's a corporate sort of thing, and I saw a lot in comics, where you'll have the one person who tries to take over the meeting. And and these people who are into these different agendas, uh, they're really they're really into taking over the meeting. You know, they're they're gonna be in charge. They're the only ones that are the smartest person in the room, the only person who could be right. And a lot of times in a corporate uh, setting, people will just go along with it. Because it's like, okay, well, they seem to know the answers. They seem to know what's what. Let's let's go their way. I, I got in trouble at both DC and Marvel. I was always the guy saying, ah, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Let's not do that. <laughs> uh, so, you know, and then, you're, you know, I'm instantly the pariah at the meeting or the summit. You need those people, though. It's, I you yeah. know, it's one thing if it's like your little church group and you have that one person. They're like, we have to introduce more racial diversity we have to make sure that we deal with the deal with the systems that cause these issues and it's like and then the rest of the group you know and i'm in the midwest so most of these people are white westerners and they're, they're like oh yeah yeah okay okay and so the group kind of goes along with it that's one thing but when it's like it's when it's these companies that are dealing with millions you would hope hundreds of millions of dollars that's like that's a whole different thing yeah or more scare like you know my my day job as a disability health reporter what we've been seeing for the last two years is like the American Medical Association, these hospital groups, these these, these um, especially subtype groups. They're like, we are the hospital that has the expertise on the issues of dealing with like uh, fibromyalgia. We're the greatest hospital in the country. We have this little group of fibromyalgia. And then they get that one or two. The one or two people are like, no, we have to change all this because it's not diverse enough. And so you literally have the American Medical Association where they're saying, you know, uh, Outcomes, outcomes, they're important, but are they as important as making sure there's social justice and the the people who are doing it, the doctors, are diverse? Isn't that really what matters in the end? And it's like, for anyone that's normal, you're like, well, I mean, I'm not against having a black doctor, you know, or, or a trans doctor, whatever. You know, but it's really important to me when I'm getting my heart bypass surgery that I don't die. Yeah. But, but you're, you're, it's like you were saying, you're like, you're the bad person. That you had to point out this like really obvious thing. Oh, it's Uncle Todd at Thanksgiving. My the one always wants to talk about MAGA and the the Democrats. You know that's how you, that's how you get treated. Well, I mean, it's like no, I mean, it's really basic. Common I mean, once sense, upon a time you went to the doctors. You went to your doctor. You saw your doctor. We, we we all have this now where you go to a practice with a dozen doctors and you never know who you're going to see. And we are way past the time where you care what color the skin is. Or ethnicity of the doctor coming in the room is you really don't who cares, you know is he good, you know I'm going to judge 
in this, you know, in this visit to this doctor, whether or not I trust him or whatever, based on his skill, what he says, you know, his expertise, you know, do these suggestions make sense to me? Is he telling me new stuff I didn't know? Does he seem to care? I, or he or she? I mean, I simply don't care. I mean, who cares? We're, we're so far past that. We are decades and decades past anyone thinking this way. You know, uh, so why are we so concerned with it still? And, and the thing is, when you go to the diversity route, it does make you wonder, is this guy here for the right reasons? Is this guy flying the plane because he's a really good pilot? Or because they needed, you know, um, an asexual person of color to fill this slot, you know, and he really doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, you know, this is insane. This is crazy, and and it's so it's so demeaning to the people that they say they want to help. Because exactly, you're not good enough. You're you don't you can't win by merit. So we're going to give you a leg up, and it's like, yeah, they can win by merit. We're all created equal. You know, so no, you, you, you see you, it with Marvel. You see it with Marvel. This is what's happened now, and I yeah. people aren't allowed to say this publicly. But I have heard this from family and friends. They're like, "Oh, that oh, there's a new Marvel thing. Oh, it's featuring women. Well, then it must not be good." Yes. It's just like, well, that's very politically incorrect. But they've made that association now because, like, if 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 it's a big diversity project, they 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 made some kind of connection. Where like, this means Disney isn't going to put all their their heart, soul, and money into this. They don't really care. So the product's going to stink. So ergo, Marvel movie featuring women, bad. Which of course is is not quite correct. It's not fair to the not fair right. to the people involved. But that is how humans are. Well, well, well it's, it's not even that it's it's women or it's girl centric or whatever. I mean, this didn't used to bother us if there was a female, if Ripley and Aliens, you know, Lara Croft. I mean, you name all these. And we would see these movies and go, yeah, that's cool, man. She's cool. She's badass. I love this movie, right? Not thinking I love it because it's a woman in the lead or anything mm-hmm. like that. And I don't think people are rejecting these movies because there's women in them or whatever. They're rejecting them because they're tiresome. It's it's like, okay, they're, this character didn't earn a place in this movie. They're here because it, it fits, it checks a box. I mean, I hear my kids are grown, but I'm hearing from people I know who have younger kids. They go to the movie, they go to see like a family-friendly movie, and there's the gay scene inserted in this movie, and it's their kids rolling their eyes going, oh, 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 because they know they're being lectured to. They know this isn't working with them because they've seen so much of it. They're like, oh, this again. You know, it's like it's like going to see a movie and they're constantly telling you to brush your teeth. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's not entertaining. Yeah, that comes with the implicit thing that if you if you think the audience has to be told to brush their teeth, that means they aren't brushing their teeth. <laughs> and it's like, well, why do you guys feel so insulted? Well, you, you just said I'm stinky. Like, <laughs> it, it, it is funny. I mean, it, it, it seems like these companies are mistaking um, skepticism as animosity, but it does. That's what happens to the audience. It makes me feel feel the animosity. I don't feel happier with Doctor Who than I did a week ago, and that, right. that's on them. Uh, we will, we will go, this will be our last topic, and for some people, this is like, every. this is everything so that people want to talk about. Okay, so you're working on Alpha Core with Eric July, this couple yeah. of Ripperverse, which are at least, <laughs> yeah, there you go, which <laughs> is on the right word scene of indie comics, comics gate, whatever you want to call this stuff. That's where all the energy seems to be. People are excited and talking about 
Uh, can you give us a quick rundown? How did this project come together for you? I mean, did someone introduce you to Eric? Did you reach out to him? Did he reach out to you? I, I saw Eric, what he was doing. I saw some interviews with him. I saw a couple of his videos and I heard good things about him. Uh, or he was a straight shooter, good guy. And he's obviously earnest about comics. And I just reached out and said, look, you're starting a comic book company. And I've been with so many comic book companies that, you know, failed. I said, if you ever have any questions, if you want to like take a chance, take advantage of my experience. I can tell you what mistakes not to make. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, he didn't make any mistakes. He's he's done everything right uh, without my advice. Uh, but at some point in talking to him, he said, would you like to write for the Ripperverse? And I'm like, yeah, we can talk about that. And he presented me with this idea for Alpha Core. He gave me the basic, very, very basic premise of what he wanted the story to accomplish and said, you know, you got between 100 and 120 pages and, and you got Joe Bennett. Let's <laughs> just go wild. And he just let me go crazy. And uh, Joe and I are just having the time of our lives creating stuff for him. Um, launching out of AlphaCore, uh, Joe and I created our own character um, in, in, the, in the Ripperverse. And Joe's working on that now. We're talking about a third character, you know, sort of fill the slots uh, that the Ripperverse needs, the sort of superhero casting. Like, hey, you don't have one of these. You don't have one of these. You need one of these. And Joe and I are creating. So uh, it's it's been a terrific experience. Uh, and it's a great crew. I, I visited recently uh, the facility uh, outside Dallas and uh, just was made to feel at home. They're just great folks. And Eric, is he, he really wants to create a comic line of escapist superhero fiction. It's, it's optimistic. It's the superheroes that we used to like. You know, it's none of the dark, I hate the word gritty. It's none of that stuff. Mm -hmm. It's it's just, you know, good high action, high adventure superhero stuff. Joe Bennett is an excellent artist. He he really got shafted by by Marvel and that kind of followed him forever. I'm really glad he, he that you're working with him because he is a talented artist. He oh, what man. happened with the Hulk step was ridiculous. I mean, he brings the eye candy. A lot of guys can bring the eye candy but can't tell a story. He's both. I mean he is such a good storyteller. I mean his action scenes flow like a movie. Um, it's weird because he and I were discussing this and, and I said, your stuff reminds me of Rodolfo Damasio, who, who I used to work with, who was like, he's a Brazilian as well. And Joe said, oh man, Rodolfo is like my idol. <laughs> so like, perfect, because I had a great working relationship with Rodolfo. I have the same relationship with Joe. It's a lot of collaborating, a lot of back and forth. And I, I really dig it. He's really into it. And I mean, I get sick of people on social media saying, oh, you're just doing this for money. Man, you don't know how many times I've turned down money because the project sucked, you know, or it wasn't interesting. Or I wouldn't have fun working. Um, Eric offered me a, a, a great opportunity to have a lot of fun writing, doing what I like to do best is write comics. It, everyone works for money. That's how that works. Well, it's, it's what a professional writer and a professional artist do, right? That's the professional part is you get a check. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're totally mercenary just phoning it in. I can't uh -huh. phone it in. I don't know how to phone it in. I got to be gonna... passionate about it or I can't write. I've been, seriously, I've been offered like big stuff. And I'm like, I wouldn't be very good at that because I don't care about it. I don't care about that character. It's like if you talk to your dentist, well, you're only here for the money. <laughs> like, well, what did she think? Well, you got to, you got to, you know, you sit at the table, dinner table with the family. How are you going to look them in the eye? You know, well, I've been sitting in a room making stuff up all day, but I didn't get paid. <laughs> 
<laughs> Gotta get paid. I, I I like you know I've I've always been honest about Eric July and the Ripperverse. I have friends that uh, hate what everything they're doing. I have friends that worship the ground they weren't walk on. I'm a balls and strikes guy, so it's like I think I think the excitement he's built and his ability to promote. I also think his ability to form the company and keep this momentum going. He's very good at that. He has a yeah. real talent for putting interest into comics and that's really a skill that has been you know this is something you brought up here earlier in this interview you were saying that they just don't know how to promote and eric delight does know how to promote oh yeah that is that is an incredible talent and skill do i have some criticism about his own his own comics himself he's done yeah but i you know he's also a beginner he's learning i and i don't think you know some people are saying that he's dishonest i don't think that's the case i think no any mistakes are made. I think it's just coming from someone that's very earnest and very new yeah. to this. No, he 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 knows he has stuff to learn about the medium. Apparently, he has nothing to learn about the business because he, like I said, he's done everything right. He knows he's he's in a learning curve. But we we all were when we started in comics. We all had we learned from other people. And he's such a down to earth guy. He's such a self effacing, modest guy that you know. Um, I think those problems will resolve themselves. But but the thing is that you know. He did well with his first project. He did well with his second project. And I think people could see the passion. They could see the earnestness there. You know, they fell in love with these characters that, that he created. So I don't see where he did anything wrong. You know, because that's not easy. It's not easy to get readers to fall in love with your characters and get engaged in that way. But he did it. So. Yeah. And I think a big part of it is because so many people you know because the way they have been treated and the industry has treated their readership i think people are desperate for a safe haven and so it's like part of what eric july is really good at making clear and like my friends are like why does he constantly say things like you know we won't dilute the stories and we won't do all these multiverse stories and yada yada and it's like that's really cheesy and on the nose i'm like oh yeah yeah it is but i mean for so many people who are longtime readers that, that have felt like so mistreated that's what they need to hear they need to hear that kind of promise like we're not going to go do any of that weird stuff the other companies do you're right. safe with us yeah because i mean he's got me he's got mike baron now uh he's got the saska sisters and we're all on the same page we are all i mean the saska sisters the energy they i did a zoom call with them and eric i mean the energy it, it's a wonder my you know computers didn't fry because the two of them are so <laughs> into it they are so excited, and it's so great to see that, you know, because, I mean, my experience at the Big Two, the last few times I worked there, it was like everybody was too cool cool for school to even care about comics, you know, and, and here I'm working with these people that are they're excited about, they're, they're worked up, and, and I've always been enthusiastic about my work, and it's great to see somebody else, you know, feeling the same way. Well, that is that is good. I do like, you know, if I have any hope in comics is that there are so many of these independent projects and it, while it's not a huge readership, it, it is a readership, which is well, more yeah, than but the, the big thing two is, I mean, say. If you see the numbers Eric is doing, I mean, he's doing numbers with basically all trade paperbacks. That's um, a lot of monthly comics aren't doing. So yeah. he's doing real. And that's the most encouraging thing to me. He's doing real numbers. He is reaching a real audience. If 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 he were on the board at Diamond or whatever with all the other comic companies, he'd have a market share now, uh, which is encouraging. It's it's unlike a lot of the crowdfunding projects, which are hit and miss here and there, uh, niche sort of boutique 
product, he's reaching a large audience comparatively. So it's it's very very encouraging that that can be done. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think it is a bright spot. Despite any criticism I have, I I definitely feel that what he's done here is a very much a net good, it's yeah. a net positive. I'm in, in industry. There doesn't seem to be a lot of those these no, days. No, no, no. There's not a so lot to be it. happy about. <laughs> All right, Chuck. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a, almost exactly a year since I had you on last, and I loved that interview back then. So I appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Uh, where can people find you? What are you working on right now that you'd like the folks at home to know about? Uh, well, I'm, I'm still working on My Sister Suprema with Anthony Gonzalez Clark. You can find that at ArcTunes. Uh, like I said, I've got three more projects in the pipeline with Eric that are in various stages of completion. Uh, and uh, I'm doing some more stuff with your boy, Zach, this month, writing some new stuff for him. Uh, Rock and Roll Ninja is a project almost out. Uh, uh, Splato has that uh, first kill Rambo graphic novel that I wrote. That's that's still available uh, in demand. So, you know, there's, you know, I got a lot of stuff going. <laughs> X, that's one thing I do notice about you. You, you like, you always have some. You always have a ball up in the air, whether it's a book or a comic or something. There's always some new Chuck Dixon project on the horizon. I'm, I'm a restless guy. What can I say? <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, we're going to end it here. Thank you so much for everyone for tuning in and checking out the show. Culturescape is put together with the help from Bain Books Publishing, an imprint of Simon Schuster. Thank you once again, guys over there, and of course, Young Voices, a journalism advocacy organization and also the viewers like you. And so until next time, my friends, keep geeking out. Yeah.